trouble so hard. Ooh, Lorna, trouble so hard. Don't nobody know my trouble but God. Oh, yes, uh, it is the Radical Reverend Show and your host, Sherry DeNovo. And just want to give a shout out to our tech today, Jessica Bellamy, who's uh, lovely to see her face on the other side of the glass today. Uh, so thank you, Jessica, for showing up. And to you out there in listener land, of course, just a reminder that although officially our fundraising period is over, it's not really. Uh, so please continue to donate. And thank you to those who have. You just have to go to the website and do your thing. Uh, I'm delighted to have as my first guest today to talk about all things political, Mike Schreiner, who is the leader of the Ontario Green Party. Mike, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Hey, Sherry. It's a pleasure to be on the Radical Reverend Show today. <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk to you first and foremost. I mean, there's so much to talk about. The session at Queen's Park has, has ended. Um, Greenbelt, yes, they passed uh, that notorious bill, but uh, what, what's really going on there? Fill us in. Well, first of all, even though the government passed the bill to open the Greenbelt for development, the fight to protect the Greenbelt, environmental protections, farmland, wetlands, and green space, is far from over and people are mobilizing all across the province to tell the premier to keep his promise and keep his hands off the green belt. I mean, you know, it's been kind of, you know, put out there back in 2018 when the premier was caught on a, on a uh, video saying, Hey, we're going to open the green belt for development and there was public backlash. He backtracked on that. But I've documented uh, 18, 19 other times where the premier or his housing minister explicitly said in the legislature, we will not open the Greenbelt for development. Now they're opening the Greenbelt for development. And quite frankly, it doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, you know, some of the land they're opening, you know, one uh, land speculator paid $100 million at 21% interest. Like, who would do that for land you can't develop? Another uh, transaction just closed a few months ago. Again, why would you be spending millions of dollars on land you couldn't develop? If, oh, you would be able to develop it a few months later and turn those millions into billions. And I think people are going to continue to push back against this. You have called and uh, followed by the NDP calling for the Integrity Commissioner to, to look into this. Um, I guess the, the overriding question in my mind is, why wouldn't they just automatically look into this? As you say, the smell <laughs> test is pretty, uh, pretty telling, and not to mention that former Conservatives, some of them former Conservative cabinet ministers, ha are working as lobbyists for, for a number of the developers. So, um, so what's happening there with that uh, investigation? Well, I mean, first of all, to do an integrity commissioner uh, investigation, and, you know, I'm sure you obviously know this as a former MPP, it's a pretty rigorous process. Like, you have to sign an affidavit and put forward, uh, you know, what you believe is compelling evidence, and it's a pretty significant undertaking. And um, I did it because, I mean, this clearly doesn't pass the smell test. Of the 15 parcels of land that the government is going to open for development, over half, eight of them, were purchased since Doug Ford was elected as premier. And again, why would people be purchasing land, uh, spending millions of dollars that cannot be developed, and that the premier over and over again has said will not be developed, uh, and then suddenly, magically, you know, with a stroke of a pen, uh, the government ran through this legislation to open the Green Belt for development, and these land speculators are literally going to turn millions into billions. The rest of us are going to pay the price. I mean, 
the Greenbelt land is there for a reason. It's there to protect the farmland that feeds us, to protect the wetlands and green space that clean our drinking water and protect us from flooding. And quite frankly, just provide spaces for us to go spend time in nature with the people we love. And, and so I don't think it passes the smell test. And so I've asked the integrity commissioner uh, to evaluate whether or not the premier and his housing minister have violated sections two and three of the Integrity Act, which basically say, you know, hey, you cannot make uh, a decision that puts you in a conflict because it's advancing the private interest of an individual over the public interest. And then the other is that, you know, you cannot provide, quote, insider information that would enable somebody to advance their own private interests. And then I've also asked the Integrity Commissioner to see if there's any unregistered lobbying activity uh, that's taken place around these Greenbelt land deals. Um, I have noticed that one of Canada's leading constitutional scholars, who also happened to be a candidate for the Green Party in the last election, uh, he's actually uh, put forward uh, and publicly put out now that he's asked the OPP uh, to engage in an investigation. And in addition to the Integrity Commissioner, uh, the NDP has asked for an Auditor General to, to look at just how much this is costing the public in terms of just transfer of wealth, uh, public and protected lands to private developer interests. Uh, I'm very pleased about uh, hearing that the OPP is involved because it seems to me that there is a criminal element here um, as well, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. You don't have to be a constitutional lawyer to see that, it seems to me. Um, talk about a smell test. Speaking here to Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party, about the Green Belt. Now, Steve Clark in the House has said, um, well, we're not losing any land. We're, we're, we're just going to, you know, uh, free up some other land to be protected, you know, even though we're taking some of this land. And the other, um, the other reason, of course, uh, put forward is, but we desperately need housing. Um, what do you make of those two reasons? Well, I mean, first of all, we desperately need to uh, increase housing supply, especially affordable housing supply. But opening the Greenbelt isn't going to solve that housing affordability crisis. I mean, the government's own hand-picked housing affordability task force, which was dominated primarily by, you know, developers uh, and and bankers and, and real estate agents, clearly stated that land is not the barrier to building more housing, that we do not need to open the Greenbelt for development. And as a matter of fact, I actually think opening the Greenbelt for development is going to make the housing affordability crisis worse. I mean, we don't need more million-dollar mansions on protected lands. What we actually need is to build affordable homes in the places where people want to live close to where they work so they don't have to be you know, engage in these long, expensive commutes that take them away from friends and family. And so I've actually put forward two bills that I think will help move us along the road to accomplishing that. One is to end exclusionary zoning to allow fourplexes and four-story walk-up apartments in um, neighborhoods across the province. And then the other is to facilitate the building of mid-rise apartments not just around transit stops, but along major transportation and transit corridors so we can build that missing middle, that gentle density. We can get past this false choice between tall and sprawl that's simply costing us way too much money, and it's actually making uh, housing less affordable. And then I would add to that, Sherry, that we also need non-market solutions as well. I mean, both the provincial and federal governments got out of supporting nonprofit and co-op housing in the mid-1990s. 
the affordability crisis has been getting worse ever since. And so we've been calling for building 160,000 um, more deeply affordable homes with nonprofit co-ops and building permanent supportive housing with wraparound mental health addictions uh, and other supports uh, to provide the, the housing and the supports that particularly people who are facing significant barriers to housing so they can have an affordable place to call home as well. Uh, we also, and I, I would add to that, all good ideas um, to, you know, real rent control. Uh, and exactly. and it's, it's a little terrifying, it seems to me, that what rent control we do have, which isn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't stay with the unit, um, so it's not true rent control, but we do have some rent control, um, could be eliminated with a stroke of a pen as well by this government if they wanted to. Um, exactly, and I would add vacancy control to that as well, um, where we get rid of these rent evictions that are forcing, you know, tenants out of affordable um, rental places, and then you know, quote, some upgrades are made and then they're rented out as, you know, luxury rental apartments that, you know, most average folks can't afford. Now, you raise the issue of, of um, uh, house, affordable housing as, as one of the things that, you know, the government is, is trying to uh, say is the reason for opening up the green belt. Um, but, you know, I, I was a, a sort of fought for inclusionary zoning for years there. <laughs> yes. um, what, what happened to that? Oh, you know what? It's just so infuriating that, uh, like you, I've been a longtime advocate for inclusionary zoning as well. And, you know, finally, uh, the dying days of the last liberal government, they, they brought it in. And now the government is, pull, the Ford government significantly pulled back on that, put caps on it, um, and, and essentially is, you know, watered down that as a tool that could be used. And, you know, what I find really infuriating is, the government is saying, you know, hey, we'll waive development charges, but we're not going to put, you know, any significant in affordability conditions in doing that. And so there's nothing that says developers are going to pass those savings uh, on to people uh, buying or renting homes. Uh, and it's likely just going to lead to either property tax increases or major service reductions for municipalities. What they could have done is they could have said, you know what? If you build deeply affordable, so like 30% of income, not 80% of market, and or you build, let's say, 20% uh, inclusionary zoning within, um, you know, a multi-residential building, let's say, that are deeply affordable, then we'll waive some fees. And we as the provincial government will replace those fees so um, developers can, can do that work. And especially I'm thinking of those nonprofit and co-op developers can do it in a way that's deeply affordable for people and will also make sure municipalities are whole. That's not what this government is doing. Uh, and I think it's actually going to make the affordability crisis worse. And it's going to put municipal budgets in a significantly difficult uh, situation. Speaking uh, to Mike Schreiner here, uh, leader of the Ontario Green Party, um, primarily about the Green Belt. We got a little off track there, um, <laughs> but I raised uh, the two issues that uh, the Ford government are, are putting forward as you know reasons for developing the Green Belt. One of them, housing. The second one um, is you know well we'll just uh, you know we'll protect some land somewhere else. Um, yeah. what, what's your response to that? Well, that that's just a red herring, bait and switch argument. Uh, so, one, the, the land that the government, quote, is adding to the Greenbelt already has protections on it. And so while I think the Greenbelt does need to be expanded, and 
the urban river valleys in particular that they're adding, um, which already have protections. And nobody's going to be building, I would hope nobody's going to be building houses along urban river valleys, which, you know, increases flood risk significantly. Uh, I'm all for adding uh, protections, uh, additional protections to, to that land by expanding the green belt. But to say that, you know, there's some sort of equivalency here is just false. Like to say, hey, we're going to add extra protections to already protected lands, but we're going to take protected lands out of the green belt makes absolutely no sense. And quite frankly, the green belt was designed, if you talk to folks like Victor Doyle, who were land use planners, who played a really important role in, de- in designing the green belt, it was designed, you know, using scientific methods and best evidence to say, hey, how do we maximize protecting the best farmland that we need to feed us? How do we make sure we protect wetlands and other natural heritage features to help clean our drinking water, protect us from flooding? How do we um, create connected ecological zones to help protect species and just maintain uh, biodiversity? I mean, my gosh, the biodiversity conference is happening in Montreal right now. Um, Those are all significant features of how the Greenbelt was designed. And if you start poking holes in that, you undermine the integrity of the entire Greek belt, which is what's at risk uh, with what the board government is doing. Uh, we're speaking about the Green Belt here with Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Greens. Um, uh, farmers, uh, w- w- you know, environmentalists, one can see biodiversity, absolutely. There are farmers involved here who will be out of farming. And one would think um, in the past, uh, Conservatives having a fairly strong rural base in Ontario, you would think this is a constituency of the Conservative Party. What, what's going on there? Yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many farmers are outraged about what's happening. Uh, and it's primarily because we're losing 320 acres of farmland in Ontario each and every day. Uh, and if you think about it, only 5% of our land mass in Ontario is suitable for growing food. And less than 1% of that is prime farmland. And a lot of that prime farmland, you know, if you went up to the CN Tower on a nice sunny day like today, you know, you could see it from the CN Tower. We simply can't afford to continue to lose that farmland and have the food security we need to feed a growing population. But also the food and farming sector contributes $47 billion to Ontario's economy, creates over 800,000 jobs. We put all of those economic benefits at risk. And the final point I want to make, Sherry, which I think hasn't been getting talked about enough, I brought a couple young farmers uh, into Queen's Park to the media studio to talk about this, that a big barrier for young people in particular going into farming is the cost of land. And once you protect that land and you take speculation out of the land and people can start buying it at prices that then make it viable to, you know, economically viable to farm the land, you can start creating a scenario where young people or new farmers uh, can actually go into growing food. The minute you take those protections away, you introduce speculation on all that farmland and suddenly that land now is being sold at rates that are for development not for farming and it makes farming like just not economically viable especially for new new farmers who who want to get into farming and you know with the whole you know the climate movement and there's a real sort of young youth movement about growing local sustainable food you just freeze those folks out of the ability to do that because they're not going to be able to access land and compete against, um, you know, deep-pocketed land speculators. 
That's exactly what the Ford government is doing, and it's going to hurt our food and farming economy. Um, moving from, and uh, I, I want to, so much to talk about, Mike, so thank you for, <laughs> for doing this. Um, the, the session has, has come to an end um, on, on the winter break. But uh, the, other, the other little, uh, you know, Ford maneuver that's just hit the, the press, which is, I think, shocking some people in downtown Toronto, is the redevelopment of Ontario Place. Um, yeah. We're looking at the removal of hundreds of trees, we're looking at parking spaces for 2,000 cars on Ontario Place. Um, talk, talk to us about that. Um, uh, this, I mean, this is just shocking. Uh, and for all of the, I mean, we, I was part of, I'm sure you were part of, and others are part of the fight to keep a casino off that yep. <laughs> land. Um, and now this. Um, talk about it. Well, I mean, first of all, Ontario Place is the people's park. I mean, this was designed as public space, accessible public space. And for the government now to be privatizing much of that space and doing it in a way that's going to you know, make it unaffordable and inaccessible for people, and also to engage in you know, what's just going to be a loss of important green space uh, you know, on the waterfront is just a tragedy. And you know, I'm, I'm really appreciating the fact that we have a citizens movement pushing a back against opening the Greenbelt for development, and we have a citizens' movement pushing back against the privatization that's happening on Ontario Place. Uh, and I just want to say to people that if you want to talk about other issues that happened during this last sitting is, um, you know, people push back against the Premier's abuse of the notwithstanding clause to take away the charter rights of the lowest paid education workers in the province. And I'm calling on people to have the same energy to push back against the privatization of Ontario Place and the opening of, of, the, of the Green Belt. This is land that is in spaces that are protected in the public interest to make it accessible to the public and also to ensure, you know, protections for the public and for the Ford government to go down the road they're going down on Ontario Place is infuriating. Yes, fought back on the casino. Remember when, when the premier was a counselor and he wanted to bring it was a, the Ferris wheel to the Portland? I mean, like he just always seems to want to take um, public spaces designed for the public good and the public benefit and privatize them uh, for the profitable interests of a handful of people. And I think it's wrong with Ontario Place, and it's wrong with the Green Belt. We're, we're looking, of course, at a party, the Conservative Party, that's hugely supported financially um, by developers. So uh, there's kind of a, again, talking about the smell test, doesn't look good there either. Um, what do you think, realistically, are the chances of, uh, I mean, absolutely, I mean, already in the polls, of course, we see these are unpopular moves. Uh, mm -hmm. But what are the chances of of beating these back of, I mean, with QP and with a strike, there were tens of thousands of union members um, who could literally shut down the educational system. Um, in terms of environmental, I mean, this is what we, we always come up against with environmental issues. You know, where's the clout here that we can bring to bear so that people feel energized and not defeated? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that, but I want to go back to the developer mm, statement sure. really quick, Sherry. I'm having developers reach out to me. And just to be clear, there are a lot of good developers out there. And a lot of them are saying what Ford is doing is hurting them as developers because he's basically saying that a, literally a handful 
of conservative-connected land speculators are bought, bought land cheap and are going to convert it into billions of dollars. And that puts developers who are playing by the rules, trying to do the right thing, trying to do more you know, environmentally responsible and more community-connected developments at a complete competitive disadvantage. And, and I think that's wrong, and I would encourage those developers to speak out more publicly because I think the public needs to know that the development community is not united what, on what Ford is doing. And then when it comes to people power, I just keep reminding people, and I've seen these signs being recycled at many of the rallies that are happening. Back in 2018, 2019, with Bill 66, the premier, uh, that was the first time in legislation he tried to open the Greenbelt for development. People pushed back, and Ford pushed back. And I remember the day I made the vote to withdraw that schedule from Bill 66. That was a big victory for people power. And I'm feeling the same movement happening against Bills 23 and 39 and the proposal to open the Greenbelt. Um, you know, there's pop-up rallies happening all over the province. Uh, there's signs popping up. I, I don't know what it's like as much in Toronto, but here in Guelph, there are, you know, Doug Ford, keep your Greenbelt promise signs popping up all over the place. I've been traveling through some of the rural ridings that are uh, conservative-held ridings. You're seeing signs pop up all over the place, hands off the Greenbelt, keep your Greenbelt promise. Um, there, there's rallies happening, uh, you know, in communities across the province, including a very large one that I participated in in downtown Toronto a couple weeks ago. And uh, I think the government is feeling the heat on this. And it's the only thing that's going to get, get the government to back down. I mean, you know, the Greens, the Liberals, and the NDP, we've all been screaming at the government saying this is wrong and being the voice of people in the legislature. And that's an important role. But I think the most important role are these efforts that are happening on the ground, grassroots organizing, to put pressure on conservative MPPs in particular. It's worked in the past. We can make it work again. Um, uh, speaking here to Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Greens. Uh, Mike, uh, the session's come to an end, but not without something unprecedented, too, which was our Lieutenant Governor. Actually, I've never seen this happen before. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> very gently, but, you know, it was there. Uh, talk about democracy. And this, of course, relates directly to cities um, with yeah. the, the, the strong mayor moves that have been passed legislatively, where in Toronto, for example, uh, John Tory can override the wishes of two-thirds of his council um, and enact whatever. Um, push, is there pushback against that, too? I know that there is, but like, where do you, it, it, is that going to be changed at all? Uh, I can't believe there's not charter challenges around this legally. Well, I, I'm, I'm hoping there is going to be charter challenges, and I wouldn't be surprised if people are organizing that right now. But I can tell you politically, uh, there's significant pushback, not only from Toronto City Council and Ottawa City Council, but you're starting to see it from other um, councils um, that, you know, that these powers could be extended to. And in some ways, you know, it's unprecedented for the LG to, even though it was very gentle, uh, make the statements around protecting democracy that she made. But it is really unprecedented what the Ford government has done to turn overturn centuries of democratic principles, which is majority rule within an elected legislative body. I mean, this is just unheard of that you could pass, you know, you know, bylaws um, with one third of council support. Like, that's just 
never been done in Westminster, you know, Western democratic legislative bodies. So, you know, to overturn literally centuries of democratic principles is just wrong. I mean, it's receiving, you know, condemnation internationally because it's uh, so unprecedented. And, you know, I would just call on the, you know, mayors, Mayor Tory and Mayor Sutcliffe, Toronto and Ottawa, to just not use the power, like just push back on it. And I would call on other big city mayors to say, we're not going to use this power because we believe in democracy. We can solve the housing crisis and maintain democracy at the same time. Uh, and and so this is this is really unprecedented. And, and I'm worried that if Ford gets away with this, he's going to chip away at additional democratic norms. Uh, speaking to Mike Schreiner, leader of Ontario Greens here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you've just tuned in. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it's a kind of watershed moment, I think, here in Toronto for John Tory, because, you know, he's positioned himself as the kinder, gentler Tory. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and if he goes along to get along with this one... Um, yeah, he'll lose that cred for sure. Absolutely. Um, in the city, uh, Mike. Before I let you go, I have to ask. I know uh, Steve Pakin is behind this. Shoutouts to Steve. <laughs> but there is a rumor circulating that you would consider, or that they should consider, approaching you uh, to become the leader of the Liberal Party in Ontario. Is any fact to that? Well, first of all, Sherry, I, I made it clear at a news conference the other day that. I don't have plans to run as liberal leader. And, you know, it's been funny because uh, since the June 2nd election, nobody from any caucus has reached out to me, but there were NDP supporters who'd reached out to me saying, you know, you should throw the hat into the leadership um, run for the NDP. And I've had a number of liberals uh, reach out to me and say, you know, you should run for a liberal leader. Be very clear. I've yet to have any conservatives reach out to me that I should be running for conservative leader. But, you know, right now I... I love being the leader of the Ontario Green Party, and I feel I have a really important role to play in the legislature, especially uh, a strong focus right now on, you know, pushing the government on climate action. I mean, we just had another FAO report come out today saying the financial risk to our waste and stormwater infrastructure is $6.2 billion this decade between now and 2030, a total of $26.4 billion dollars worth of financial risk that the FAO has identified to, you know, transportation infrastructure, buildings, stormwater infrastructure. And then with, you know, this whole proposal to open the Greenbelt for development, you know, I got a lot on my hands just pushing uh, for the Green Party's values right now, and that's where my focus is. Um, speak to us just, um, uh, which takes us to the, the half hour, just uh, on the on the federal greens now. Um, any any uh, stake in that uh, in terms of what might happen and, and just thoughts uh, of the future of the Green Party? Because, uh, I mean, you have punched above your weight in the legislature without question. Um, party as a whole, talk to us about that. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that the federal party uh, is able to overcome some of the challenges it's obviously experienced over the last few years. And, um, you know, I've largely tried to stay out of that because I'm just focused on leading the Ontario Green Party, pushing back against the Ford agenda and really just pushing for climate action here at the provincial level. Um, you know, Elizabeth May is a highly respected uh, MP and, you know, my hope is, is she can help stabilize the party and, and continue to build the green movement because, 
you know, the window, the window to address the climate crisis is closing quickly. And, and we need uh, strong green voices and strong voices for climate action, both at the provincial and federal levels. And I think the federal Green Party has an important role to play in that regard. And, and my hope is they can resolve their differences and get everyone on the same page again. Uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking to uh, you, Mike. What's ahead? What do you hope to hap- have happen uh, when you resume and a little later in the winter? Yeah, well, my hope is is that when we come back in February that the government is backtracking on its proposal to open the Greenbelt for development because of strong public pushback and that we can actually start having a discussion around the real solutions to address the housing affordability crisis. And there's a direct link between that and addressing the climate crisis because the biggest driver of climate pollution in Ontario is sprawl. Uh, That's what's driving transportation emissions. And the biggest driver of that, obviously, is housing development in places that, like on the Greenbelt, that it shouldn't happen. So let's build great, affordable uh, communities where people can live close to work and they can reduce their carbon footprint at the same time. Any bills that you're going to introduce that you're sort of thinking of now in the planning stages? Well, the two biggest bills I'm pushing right now, and I'm going to do some more housing ones, is um, I've introduced uh, Bill 44 and Bill 45, which would end exclusionary zoning in Ontario and uh, bring in uh, more housing for uh, missing middle and mid-rise development, uh, which I think are both key issues to addressing the housing affordability crisis and addressing the climate crisis. And then, of course, Sherry, you know, we can't not talk about the health care crisis that we're facing in Ontario and going to just meeting with a couple constituents right now who, you know, like so many people, are struggling to have their loved ones cared for in hospital and in long-term care and just continuing to push for the government to invest in the people who care for us to shore up our public health care system. Yes, and uh, this is a government, by the way, that has uh, shortchanged the health care system by a significant chunk, almost a billion and dollars. And dollars. <laughs> uh, and uh, is still asking the federal government for more money. So there you go. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, um, uh, Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Greens, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak again when the legislature resumes. Have a, have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll talk in the new year. You too, Sherry, and I always appreciate it when you show up at Queen's Park. (laughs) Okay, I will more often, I think. (laughs) Bye, Mike. Bye now. We'll take a a bit of a break, and then uh, we'll... We're changing the channel a little here on the Radical Reverend Show and coming back with um, with a clergy person who's been on the show before, uh, Minister Junior Joplin. Looking forward to that, so stay tuned. A Heart House Fitness Center exclusive. Reformer Pilates will enhance your fitness membership and help you say goodbye to aches and pains. With hands-on, personalized training with our in-house Reformer Pilates experts, you can realign your spine, strengthen your core, and get back to doing all the things you love. Read about our Pilates training team and how they can help you reach your fitness and wellness goals at hearthouse.ca. Please note, Reformer Pilates training is offered as an enhancement to your Heart House Fitness Center membership. Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. 
And we are back here on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you out there in listener land for staying tuned. Uh, and just a reminder again, after 35 years on air, uh, the, the little radio station that could is still uh, still rocking on. So uh, don't forget, if you've been putting it off and you haven't donated, to just go to the website and do that. We always appreciate a shout-out, too, here on the Radical Reverend Show. I think we've been on the air since the late 90s, so we've been here for a while. Um, right now, ch- uh, changing topics, uh, and uh, so delighted to have uh, Reverend Junior Joplin. Uh, Junior, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. So just because it's kind of dropped out of the news um, for a while now, and, and a lot of listeners may not be aware of your story, uh, can you talk about what happened to you uh, as, as clergy person? Tell us a little bit of your story. Sure. Well, I, um, I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. Um, my background is Baptist. I've been serving as a Baptist minister since well, really, my first job in a Baptist church, I was only 19, so for for a very long time now, and I'd been serving as a pastor in the suburbs of Toronto in Mississauga, um, and I came out as trans in 2020, and uh, by a very narrow margin, a couple of weeks later, my congregation voted to, to fire me, um, and so th- the way I came out, though, um, was pretty visible by design because I wanted to affect some change, not just in my own congregation, but in churches around around the world as much as possible. And I had some friends tell me in the lead up to my coming out that the story would probably get some traction. And I took that and said to myself, well, if this is going to happen, then how can I use that, whatever platform I'm given to, to make a positive impact? So that was uh, two years ago. And a little more than two years ago, and since then I've started working as an associate pastor at the Metropolitan Community Church of Toronto. And how's that going? They're very, very lucky to have you, by the way. <laughs> well, thanks. It is a, it's a remarkable church. Sometimes I kind of pinch myself uh, just to get the chance to work there. Really wonderful people. Um, you know, you were just talking about your, uh, the history of you doing uh, the radio program and certainly activism for a long time. And you know, MCC Toronto is, is, has been doing that kind of activism for, we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. And, um, you know, apart from it being just a really lovely congregation of people to work with, there are some, there are some ways that people uh, and the congregation itself is, have kind of changed history here in Canada and around the world. So we, we try our best to continue to be a, um, um, a vibrant and inclusive and progressive faith community. And, you know, like every faith community, sometimes we get it right, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, indeed, and and congratulations on that 50th year. So now let's go back to, you know, so you left your, your Baptist congregation, they fired you, um, and you challenged that. Uh, how is that going? Well, um, you know, I, I did file a lawsuit a little more than a year ago, and and it's just going very slowly. That's kind of what uh, my counsel told me to expect, not to expect anything to happen quickly. So it's still ongoing. Um, my counsel likes the merits of my case. And um, a lot of days I just don't even think about it unless there's something actually happening related to the case. So uh, at the moment I'm, I'm in one of those sort of waiting periods. And hopefully there'll be a resolution in the new year. Um, don't know what that will look like, but, but we'll see. 
I mean, this would be really dramatic if there's any resolution at all, and I'm sure you're aware of that, Junior. Speaking here to uh, Reverend Junior Joplin, um, who came out as trans and was fired from her congregation because of that. Um, now, you know, in Canada, as in many places, there's this separation of church and state, and not only Baptist churches, but, you know, Roman Catholic churches, obviously, and many, many others. Um, in fact, probably the if you looked on paper, um, well, eh, I don't know, United Church of Canada's biggest Protestant denomination, but still, I think, you know, the majority of Christian churches, even in this country, uh, probably would not be happy to have a trans person in the pulpit, um, many of them not a woman at all in the pulpit, and um, certainly a lot of them not uh, anybody on the LGBTQ uh, plus uh, 2S um, community in the pulpit either, and they have got away with that. Um, so, yeah. so, so I'm really interested, and I think our listeners are, are really interested in, you know, how you think, um, how you think that that might re be resolved, or you know, what's the where's the challenge that can get around that? Well, you know, for, one of the things that I like to say is, you know, I'm, I'm a woman first. And I don't, uh, and I'm, a, and then I'm trans, you know, I'm a woman of trans experience. Um, my, I, my womanhood is primary and, um, I'm, I'm not ashamed to be trans or anything like that, but, um, my transness is not bigger than my womanhood, if that makes sense. And so if I had been part of a denomination that had a long history of not ordaining and employing women as pastors, that, um, that may have given them a foothold to say, no, she, she shouldn't be our pastor because we are a denomination that doesn't believe that women should be pastors. And I think if I had been a Roman Catholic priest, for example, uh, the case would be very different. Um, my denomination had been ordaining women as pastors since the 1940s. And in fact, the first Canadian Baptist to ordain a woman as pastor did it back in 1919. So uh, I always, always like to kind of toot the horn of those progressive Baptists out there, because there, there are a number of them out there, um, and sometimes um, the, the louder Baptist voices like to say that um, they're, not, they're not legitimate Baptists. But the fact is, my, my denomination had a long history of ordaining and employing women as pastors, and um, it, it doesn't, it's not right that I should be less employable as a woman than when I was living as and being perceived as a man. Um, and I know that in the past, Baptists in Canada have, they've expressed some views that I would call homophobic, um, but, but nothing specifically transphobic. Um, and I, I've tried to keep the, the focus in my activism, uh, what little that I've done, and, and certainly in my lawsuit, on my, my gender, um, which is not something that uh, many churches or, or many folks around society have given a lot of thought to before maybe 10 years ago. Um, I like to say to people that the church I grew up in was not transphobic because they didn't know how to be transphobic. They were homophobic, but they didn't know enough about trans people to be transphobic yet. <laughs> so I, I think certainly as trans people uh, increase in visibility and influence, um, there's a lot of transphobia that didn't exist or was uh, more covert maybe 20 years ago that's becoming a lot more a lot louder 
speaking here to Reverend Junior Joplin um, about her her journey. Now, Junior, you're American um, by birth, and you I'm must right. watch uh, and see what's happening down south, especially where trans uh, rights are concerned. Uh, it's really, I mean, demonstrations outside, like drag shows and things. I mean, it, it really seems to be picking up steam down there in a, a disturbing way. Um, thoughts about that? Well, it, it is scary. I, I feel, um, you know, as an American uh, trans woman, I feel uh, an odd sense of grief over it um, because it's happening to my siblings. And it's not happening to me as, in as direct a way, and I'm grateful for that, but it still takes its toll. I, I have friends that are doing really remarkable work as activists, um, as advocates. Uh, they're, I, you know, I have friends that are parents of trans kids that are driving hours every day to get to the state capitol to testify or protest so that the, they don't get investigated for child abuse, for example, or they don't get their, their children's gender-affirming care taken away. And it, it's got to be an exhausting fight. I think sometimes as Canadians, we we sort of gawk across the border. And, and sometimes uh, one, of the, one of the sad side effects is that it prevents us from really taking a good look at the struggles of LGBTQ plus people here. Um, it's really easy for us to say, oh, gosh, you know, people are showing up with guns at drag shows in the United States. But I, I don't hear people saying much about the fact that 45 percent of trans Ontarians are living with unmet medical needs. That's not as compelling an issue uh, for Canadians, sadly. So as long as we can look south and say we're a little bit better than down there, we can be really apathetic up here. Really good point. Thank you for making that. Um... Uh, years ago in my political days, of course, fought for Toby's Law, and that was, so in 2012, we passed um, uh, gender identity and gender expression into the Ontario Human Rights Code. Uh, and what's happening in healthcare is is an abomination, really, here, because it it uh, is anti-human rights, and it does not live up to the Ontario Human Rights Code. There should be equal access to healthcare for everyone, including uh, trans and non-binary people, and that's not happening. And this is a shout-out to uh, Chris Montem, who is brought in a bill to try to make that so. Um, uh, and I've, as I've often said, it shouldn't even be necessary. It, uh, yeah. there, there should be cases already um, based on the Human Rights Code uh, around that issue because um, it's simply, uh, it simply is a breach of hum- human rights at the end of the day. Um, but I didn't realize that, yeah, 45%, that's, that's truly shocking. Um, uh, and and certainly there's still a huge gap, and, and, and maybe you want to jump in and talk about this, Junior, but there's a huge gap in consciousness raising and education, even in our public school system where, you know, you could have, you know, gay straight alliance clubs and you can have pride flags flying and things, but um, to come out as trans is still a different uh, reality, and it's uh, a non-binary, and it, you know, although some kids with very supportive parents are kind of bucking that trend, um, it's still something that we see. Maybe maybe speak about that, too. Sure. Well, you know, the first thing um, when you're talking about trans kids is just having a supportive parent. Two supportive parents is great if you have it, but even just having one supportive parent can create dramatic improvements in mental health, um, reduce the chances of a trans kid self-harming or being likely to self-harm by like 40 or 50 percent. 
it, it just makes all the difference in the world. Uh, just knowing that that person who you you count on to love you unconditionally really loves you unconditionally. And I, I you know, I talk with the parents of trans kids, usually uh, parents whose kids are just new in transition, and that, that I'll get a call like that in my office at the church, you know, a couple times a month, and and it can be a struggle. I I, I can imagine um, that knowing your child one way and and having to get used to uh, knowing and relating to your child another way can be tough. Um, but those parents who who do the work of, of learning and um, supporting and then really going to bat for their kids uh, makes such a huge difference. And that's one less little, that's one less bit of trauma that a, a trans person has to carry around because uh, there's so many parts of transition that are potentially traumatizing uh, just due to the stigma and lack of support and, and difficulty navigating um, the administrative and healthcare related uh, parts of transition. So it, it's so important to have people on side. And I, I am in awe of, and they're really my heroes, these, these parents of, of trans kids who, who really become these protectors um, and advocates for their, their kids. So that makes a huge difference. It, it absolutely does, and we have seen it in action, which, you know, and just looping back because we perhaps there, there are those that are listening that don't aren't quite aware of what's happening um, in some of the southern states um, around parenting and trans kids. Maybe you want to, as a you know, former American, sure. talk about that. Well, one of the – it seems like there are a number of fronts um, to this sort of right-wing assault on trans rights in the States. And, and one of them is the attempt to make supporting or affirming a trans kid's gender illegal um, on, on the grounds that it, it, is, it would be considered like abusive. Uh, so I know parents in the States who have been investigated by Child Protective Services just for affirming their trans kids. And what seems to be the case uh, down in the states is you'll have these uh, right-wing um, think tanks that that crank out these bills essentially, and they send them to their operatives in in every state legislature. So you'll see these bills that you know look like they've been plagiarized because I mean it's just one copy, copy and paste, copy and paste. So okay, South Carolina does the same thing as Alabama does the same thing as Wyoming does the same thing as Texas. Um, I think Rhode Island introduced a, um, a bill that, that hopefully in that state doesn't have any chance of passing, but the language is all kind of the same. And, and, and part of the part of the really frightening language that in one or two states has become law, um, it, it investigates the, the parents of trans kids um, on grounds that affirming the kids is considered child abuse. And I think that's, that's so heartbreaking to... to I, I can't imagine being in a position like that, either as a parent or as a child, knowing that, you know, I need to take steps towards affirming my own sense of gender identity. But if my parents, I could get my parents in trouble if they if they affirm me or we might have to move. I know that there are states that have basically started introducing um, almost like refuge laws saying for example, if, if a family fleeing 
the effects of transphobic legislation in Texas moves to California and they're still in trouble in Texas. We won't like extradite or, or whatever. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know all the legal details, but I know that, that there is effectively, there has effectively been legislation in some states to create almost like places of refuge for trans people and their families fleeing other states. And that's just such a horrible state of affairs down there. Uh, it's shocking. And, and, and also in light of the high suicide rate uh, and depression rate among children who do not get that care, right? That's right. That, that, um, that rate is, is intensified, it's exacerbated often by the, the religious convictions of, of the family. Uh, that was one of the things that when I was getting close to coming out, uh, one of the statistics that that most inspired me to try to be visible and make whatever difference I could was, was learning that for most kids, being part of a faith community is something that improves mental health um, and it improves quality of life. And certainly when I was a kid, I was, you know, I was the most involved person in my youth group. The youth ministry at my church meant a lot to me, and I became a youth minister a little later, but and it, it felt like a special place for a lot of kids, but for kids that are 2SLGBTQ+, the more religious their family is, the more likely they are to uh, potentially self-harm. And so it, it's literally endangering the lives of, of queer kids uh, when, they, when their families are, are more religious. And so that's terrifying to me. Um, I, sort of, I wish there were more religious communities that were affirming, but... Um, I wish that that those kids who are not in affirming communities could could get out of those. Uh, speaking to Reverend Junior Joplin here, um, out um, a trans uh, clergy and. Um, and a real boon to Toronto, actually, and thank you. Um, we will follow your case along. Before I let you go, Junior, I want to talk about a case that's recently hit the news. I'm not going to mention names because, um, quite frankly, they're not alone anyway, but a Christian college that had a, a suicide of a non-binary student who was very active in trying to do what you have done in your life, and that is to advocate on behalf of other queer kids in the in the college um, and uh, and and this ended in uh, their suicide uh, maybe speak about beyond you know churches and faith institutions and you know primary and secondary schools what about the college systems that have you know religious affiliations both both here in the states but this happened in Ontario so yeah talk about that Sure did. Yeah. And just seeing that news was heartbreaking. Um, my, my, I, I guess it, it made me think of some of the way I felt um, after having kind of advocated for more inclusivity in the church for years and then finally coming out as sort of kind of the, the ultimate part of uh, advocacy on my part. I can't think of anything else um, beyond that. That, that could be more impactful because really the most important thing that 2SLGBTQ plus people of faith have to offer um, is, is just themselves. I, I think in too many communities, and I think this goes for universities, 
in, in too many in too many institutions, queer people are spoken about as if we are abstractions. We're spoken about hypothetically, and it, it it's easier to hate an idea. It's a little harder to hate a person, and so I, I think the more of us within faith communities or within, say, Christian universities or whatever kind of community, just simply, you know, stand up and say, you know, this is who I am, and, and put a human face on what, for so many people, is just a, you know, like I said, a hypothetical issue. That has the power to make a lot of change, but on the flip side, it creates this enormous vulnerability. Um, if there's one thing that has been really difficult for me in, in the years since I came out, it's, it's, it's the way that my coming out really put a spotlight on my identity and, and to the point that I feel like I'm trans before I have anything else, um, that, that nothing I've ever done or will ever do will be as important to people as the fact that I'm trans. Um, people know me because I'm trans. People invite me to do things because I'm trans. And I feel very one-dimensional, so it can be a little disillusioning. Um, and that vulnerability, uh, it, it has an effect. And so I, I, I recognize that in the case of a student, to put yourself out there like they did to fight for your community and to also say, this is, this is me. This is not just me arguing for this philosophical idea. In a way, this is a referendum on me, my humanity, who I am, and whether I deserve to belong. Uh, that can be such a difficult thing, and it's so important to take care of yourself. It's so important to surround yourself with people that love you and will support you um, and not let yourself become like flattened and one-dimensionalized a bit because that can that can certainly take its toll um Thank i do you. think mm -hmm. that the more of us that speak up and say this is who i am uh, i i get i get so many messages from closeted queer clergy and church members and church staff and if i could wave a magic wand and make every single one of us come out this sunday at church i would love it because i think the world would change Absolutely. Speaking to Reverend Junior Joplin here, and just a couple of minutes left, uh, uh, Junior, I, um, uh, do you hear from your congregants from your last church at all, or is there any connection, or you know, ha yeah, have um, have thoughts and minds and hearts changed there in the wake of what you did? Yeah, you know, the, it was such a close vote. Fifty-eight, fifty-three was the vote. So you're looking at, you know, fifty-something people that said they were fine with me continuing as pastor. And a lot of folks from my former church have left to go get involved in other churches. Um, a couple of folks from within my, my congregation came out themselves um, um, after they saw me do it, which I thought was really beautiful. And, and, and there have been some ways that folks have tried to continue, like the connection and, and continue friendships. And uh, it's been... It's been nice. It's been a, it's a little hard sometimes just because that I think I'll be dealing with parts of that trauma for a long time and they'll pop up in, in different ways. Uh, but there are certainly people that are part of that congregation who still mean a great deal to me um, and, and who I'm still in contact with. Beautiful. And thank you for what you do. Uh, 
And thanks for being on the Radical Reverend Show. Till next time, I'm sure we'll talk again. (laughs) That was Reverend uh, Junior Joplin, uh, clergy um, out trans person and uh, her journey. Uh, And to you out there in listener land, of course, we always love to hear from you. Um, Your comments always answered, your questions always answered, and your thoughts um, for future programs always taken seriously. Uh, So until next time on uh, the Radical Reverend Show next week, we're going to be uh, focused again on uh, some urban voices about what's happening in our cities in this province. So do stay tuned for that. Uh, And of course, you know, have an amazing time. Look forward to talking to you again. Oh, God.